It's good to gather together. Uh, we get a few moments now to gather around God's Word. And if you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn to the Gospel of Mark. It's uh, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, um, Luke, John. It's one of the first four Bibles of the, or books of the New Testament. And I want to read um, the portion of Scripture we looked at last week and then tie it into the couple verses I want to look at this morning. Uh, so Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to verse 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him as a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Father, help us to understand the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Rightly, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've mentioned uh, before that Mark starts his gospel in a unique way. He immediately attaches it to a prophecy in Isaiah referring to John the Baptist who would come and announce his arrival on the scene. He is the fulfillment of prophecies regarding the Messiah. And when we dive into the life of Jesus, we dive in right away to his public ministry. We are thinking about Jesus as the one who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Mark will explain us, explain that to us and help us understand that more fully as we work our way through this. Last week, we spent a little bit of time talking about how uh, Jesus was uh, empowered and full of the Holy Spirit. That is Jesus the man, I believe that is how he functioned and how he obeyed and how he walked as one who the fullness of the Spirit rested upon him. And now we come here to this particular text, which immediately after his baptism, the Spirit drives him out in the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. It's a helpful passage of Scripture to work our way through. I just want to basically point out some things as we do this. I hope for our help and for explanation in the text. Mark notes very clearly that immediately after his baptism, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. This word immediately is one that's used probably 41 times in Mark. There's a pace in Mark. He doesn't fill in details. He's the shortest of the Gospels, but he moves the story along. But he tells us immediately after the baptism, the Spirit urged Jesus further into the wilderness. Jesus didn't have time to go pack some bags. He didn't have time to go get any food. Uh, it was simply that as he came up out of the water, maybe spent a few minutes drying off, talking to a few people, the implication is that immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. The scope and the purpose of Christ's time in the wilderness is unlike anything you and I will ever experience. We will have times when we face a wilderness experience. Uh, that's how we would describe it. We feel alone. We feel deserted. We feel in a foreign kind of place. 
But we will never, ever experience what our Lord Jesus experienced, nor will the weight of what he was participating in ever be something that we will experience in our own lives. The scope and the purpose of Jesus' time in the desert was his engagement in a conflict, which is the most significant conflict that has ever taken place in human history. The encounter with Jesus and Satan, which now took on new proportions with his inauguration into his public ministry, was a cosmic battle. It wasn't just a battle for humankind, it was a battle for the cosmos, so to speak. And it was the most important battle that any human has ever faced because if Jesus failed at any point, the plan of God would be nullified. It was a moral war. There were only two combatants, but in this war, every single human being, and in fact the universe, rested in the balance of the outcome of that battle. Matthew and Mark, if you read them, will both connect the baptism of Jesus with him going immediately out into the wilderness to be tempted. But Luke does something very unique. Luke inserts between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus a genealogy. We've referred to that genealogy before, but it's a genealogy where Luke takes the life of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And I think his point is to connect Jesus with all of humanity. But it's also Luke's way of telling us that what Jesus experienced, he is experiencing now as the second Adam, as the one who is now coming to undo what the first Adam caused by his sin and to do what God had wanted the first Adam to do, so to speak. The first Adam had brought the world into suffering and into sin, and the second Adam will lead the world out of suffering and sin into perfection. Jesus is, in this particular text, what Luke is describing for us is Jesus is both fulfilling the role that the first Adam failed to fulfill, and he's also fulfilling the role that Israel failed to fulfill. I hope this will make sense to you in a couple moments. Mark says something interesting, which it may have caught your attention. He's the only one that says this. It says that Jesus was driven out into the wilderness and he was with the wild animals. It's very fascinating to me that that exact same word is used in Genesis 3.1 where we encounter Satan's temptation of the first Adam in the garden. And in Genesis 3.1, we read there that now the serpent was more crafty than the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. I'm convinced there is a comparison that is being made here. But the wild animals among which Adam, the first Adam, lived were calm and had not been affected by sin and were not rebellious against mankind. If you remember when we talked in Genesis 9-6, the animals had been changed by sin. And God had put a fear of man in the animals because of the change in their nature because of sin. And so now Jesus is going into the wilderness to face ferocious wild animals and to live among them. The first Adam was in a beautiful garden. Christ, the second Adam, was in the wilderness. The first Adam was well-fed and well-rested. The second Adam was no, not unlikely tired as he lived in the wilderness, and he was certainly hungry. The first Adam faced an inexperienced tempter, The second 
Adam faced a temper whose, tempter whose skills were well, well honed by now. The first Adam plunged humanity into ruin. The second Adam would set the world on a course for redemption and renewal. So there is a deliberate connection that we are to think about when we read this text of Jesus going into the wilderness. That's why it says his experience is nothing like we will ever experience. Secondly, though, there's a connection between Jesus and Israel. Just as the Spirit led or drove Christ into the wilderness, so Christ, or God, led Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness. This was God's intention. This was God's plan. And the wilderness is always to be understood as a place of testing. It's a place removed from sort of society. It's a, it's a place where God will test us. Will we trust him? Will we walk with him? Will we wait for his provision? Will we rely on his word, which is spiritual food, uh, as well as the provision of our material food? So the wilderness is understood as a place of testing. And we read in Numbers chapter 23, or 14, verse 23, how Israel failed again and again and again. Ten times, the writer Moses tells us, Israel failed in the wilderness. And they had a decision to make, and they failed again and again. Will I stay in this wilderness and trust God? Or will we be better off to return to Egypt? Will I live by faith? Or will I live by my stomach and my sight? As most of you know who are familiar with the Old Testament, almost everyone in Israel failed the test. And rather than trusting in God and waiting on God, they murmured against God. They quarreled with one another. They made God angry by their rebellion. Jesus, I'm sure, had the wilderness experience on his mind when the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And I would say this is clearly understood. You can read, uh, Pastor Barry brought it to my attention, and I read it this morning, Psalm 78. You can go and read Deuteronomy chapter, basically 6 to 8, as uh, Moses has got the people of Israel on the edge of the land of Canaan, after walking in the wilderness for 40 years, and every single scripture that Jesus uses, the three scriptures that Jesus uses to combat the temptations of Satan in the wilderness are found in that particular text. In other words, that what the people of Israel failed to do, Jesus did by trusting fully in the Father in the wilderness those 40 days. The main point simply as Jesus succeeded where the first Adam failed, and Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. That is the point, I think, of those 40 days in the wilderness. It says that Jesus was tempted. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. We'll come back to this in a moment and spend a little bit of time there, but I want you to just think about this. You probably already have. Can we look at Jesus for help in temptation? In other words, was Jesus really tempted as we are? Did he really experience the, the weight of the tempter as you and I face the weight of the tempter? My answer is yes, he did. And I'll explain that in a couple moments. But first of all, I, I just want you to think about this statement. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. I was thinking that a little bit uh, last couple of weeks. We should never willingly 
put ourselves in temptation's path. We should never think that I can mess with this, I can play with this, I can handle this. There's something in my willpower that will help me resist this specific situation. We ought to avoid temptation like the plague. And it is instructive to me that it's not Jesus who willingly went into the desert, but it was the Spirit of God who led him into the desert. I think you know very clearly what it says in Ephesians. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. When we face temptation, and we face temptation on three fronts, you know, right? We face temptation from the devil, we face temptation from the world, and we face temptation from the flesh. Jesus only faced temptation on two fronts, from the world and from the devil, because Jesus didn't have sinful flesh. But nonetheless, we are told in the Bible, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's a reality to, to the world in which we live, in which there is this invisible spiritual world, invisible forces in heavenly places, evil benevolent forces, a very real Satan or devil who works amongst us to cause us downfall. And so we should never willingly walk into or put ourselves in places of temptation. You can read in the New Testament a few times that we are told to flee temptation. We are told to flee idolatry. We are told to flee from the love of money. We are told to flee sexual immorality. We are told to flee youthful passions. In other words, I think what Paul is saying is don't hang around in those areas. Don't stay in places where you'll be tempted. Don't overestimate your ability to wrestle and battle temptation. We're also to pray, are we not? What's the Lord's the prayer that he taught his disciples, Father, lead us not into... And, and I, I, I helpful when I take the word. The word temptation and testing is the same word. Context matters. And we know that God does not tempt anyone. So it's, for me, when I pray that prayer, it's God, lead me not into testing. Because every time I am led into a test, it's an opportunity for the devil to turn that test into a temptation. And that's the play on that word, which can mean both things. And so I pray, because Father, God can't tempt us. And God won't tempt us. But he will put us in positions where we are tested. And those tests then are used by the evil one to tempt us. So we are to pray, Father, lead me not into those positions where I will be tempted. And then we have advice in uh, Proverbs chapter 5 and chapter 7, uh, clearly, of uh, observations of a young man who, rather than avoiding the place of a prostitute, willingly sort of walks toward the direction, goes down the street, walks on the other side of the street, but keeps his eye on the doorway, goes there at night where nobody is looking. And so there's this sense of a curiosity with sin, a curiosity with temptation. And the Bible would say, no, flee from it because the devil prowls around like a warring lion seeking someone to devour. So being tempted, I hope you know, is not a sin. Sinning is a sin. And Martin Luther said, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. I think that's helpful. He's led in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Up to this point, we have been talking 
about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I've wanted us to understand the full reality of the humanity and the deity of Jesus in the person of Jesus Christ. He is Jesus, fully man, the Son of God, fully God, the Messiah in a single body. But now Mark introduces us to Satan. Do you believe Satan is real? Some here might say, I don't really believe that. We're in the 21st century, Paul. Come on, get over yourself. This is stuff of myths. This is stuff of Halloween. I think sometimes our caricature of Satan is a guy in a red suit with horns and uh, breathing smoke and looking all evil and wicked. But if you say Satan doesn't exist, I would say, well, what proof do you have of that? How do you know he doesn't exist any longer? If he did exist at one time, how do you know he's not existing now? Or has he never existed? How do you account for the evil in the world? How do you account for the deception in the world? How do you account for the malevolent forces that are in the world? One individual I read this week said, I can't begin to imagine the incalculable spiritual harm that has come from failing to recognize the existence of the demonic realm. Ignorance of Satan's schemes and a reluctance to confront the enemy in biblically appropriate ways have opened the door to untold damage, oppression, and spiritual bondage. In the name of cultural sophistication and intellectual respectability, code words for pride, the demonic has either been denied altogether or at best relegated to a pre-scientific medieval mentality that is beneath the dignity of forward-thinking folk of the 21st century. Scripture, Satan first appears on the scene in Genesis 3.1. Although originally he's simply known as the serpent, subtle, a deceiver. We find that Satan by name has only appeared three times in the rest of the book of the Old Testament. He's found in Job 1 and 2 and 3 essentially. He's found in 1 Chronicles 21.1. Some of you have been reading the 10 by 5 plan and you read the account of um, uh, David in uh, God um, getting uh, David to number the people of Israel in 2 Samuel. Well, you go back to 1 Chronicles, and it said, and Satan incited David to number the people. That's your own question to wrestle with. But he's mentioned there. And then the other place he's mentioned is in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. And although I never put myself on any position with any of the Old Testament prophets, I feel sometimes the weight of this. In Zechariah 3, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. I feel that sometimes when I'm preaching. Just the accusations of the evil one. So he's mentioned three times in the Old Testament, but you come to the New Testament and there's an explosion of understanding of Satan in his work and of the demonic, uh, the demonic world. And so I do very much believe in the existence and the activity of demons. I believe that spiritual warfare is all too real, that we must be discerning as we wrestle with the schemes of the evil one in the world in which we live. We spent some weeks talking about the various wiles of the devil, a number of years back. We have to put on the whole armor of God. We need to stand firm. And so I believe that Satan is real. And so it says the Spirit of God 
took him out to be tempted by Satan, a very real created being. It helps me to wrestle with the real intention of the evil one when I think of Revelation 12, 4. It says, the dragon stood before the woman, and the dragon is another word for Satan or the devil. It says, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The same word that I just read from 1 Peter 5, 8, this devil roars, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking what? Somebody to devour. So there is this evil, evil intention of the wicked one, and that is to devour. So it says the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. I hope you know just on the side that God does not tempt anyone. And you can go to James chapter 1, verse 13 to 15, which is one of the most succinct explanations of that, where James clearly reminds us that God does not tempt anyone, that God cannot tempt anyone with evil. But God uses the tests that we find ourselves in to tempt us. And you know the methods of Satan, do you not? In your own life, when you take time to examine a temptation, often it's his way of coming up to you and saying, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Come on, Paul, if God was good, would he withhold that from you? If God was good, wouldn't he show you this? And so Satan takes the good things of God, takes the character of God, takes the word of God, and he twists it. But God does not tempt anyone to sin. So Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And I want to address a question that probably many of you are asking yourselves even right now, or maybe you've asked yourselves in the past. Were the temptations of Jesus real? Could he have sinned? After all, isn't he the Christ, the Son of God? But then what do I make of a passage like Hebrews chapter 2? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So I ask you again, do you think the temptations of Jesus were real? I think the first thing to at least lay before us is this reality that, however we answer that question, we will in a couple of seconds, is Jesus Christ did not sin. It's very clear again and again in the New Testament, four or five places, where the sinlessness of Christ is affirmed again and again and again and again. So we should never for a moment think that he slipped up a little bit here or maybe once over there. The Bible affirms the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the sinlessness of Christ is reasonable The sinlessness of the Son of God is reasonable to conclude from what Scripture teaches us about Christ. 
He was the Son of God incarnate. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. Jesus must have known this to some extent at some point along the way. And in knowing it, it we understand it would be impossible to separate, from, separate the human reality of Jesus from the divine reality of Christ should he have sinned. It couldn't be done. So, so if, in fact, Jesus had ever sinned, it would be impossible for God to say, say okay, Christ the man over there, or Jesus the man over there, Christ over here, we're good. The two natures of Christ, while fully distinct, are critically bound together. So the one born of Mary was fully God as well as fully human. And we do ask ourselves again and again, how is that possible? There is mystery to it, but the Bible does tell us that that is true. There is a reality that somehow in the, in the, in the combining of those uh, realities in a single person, there must have been some limitations of both. So in other words, Jesus, it says in Philippians, set aside the prerogatives of deity and took on human flesh. By being in a body, Jesus can't be in two places at once. And so while he didn't give up his deity, there was a limitation to the outworking of deity in his body. And on the same sense as well, that with his human nature, there were some limitations that he took on in his flesh because he was God. In other words, it's impossible to separate fully the divine from the human nature in the event of sin. So, hear me out. My conclusion is Jesus couldn't have sinned. Third, Jesus could not sin because he was God. And some would then say, well, Jesus did not sin also because he was God. If that's the case, I don't find it helpful for me when I face temptation. If that's true, then we're not talking about the same thing. If that's true, the temptations that Jesus faced were not like my temptation because he was God. And as God, he couldn't sin. So I asked the question differently, and this is how I work it out in my head. And I wish sometimes I had found this earlier in my life as a young man. But the answer to the question is, could Jesus have sinned? Is no, he couldn't have sinned because he was God. But the answer to the question is, why did not Jesus sin? It's because although he was God... As Jesus, he deliberately chose not to rely on his divinity to resist, but rather resisted temptation fully as a man in the resources which God had given him. Do you see the difference there? Jesus could not sin because he was God. Jesus did not sin because he chose not to rely on the resources of his divinity but rather on the divorce resources that God had given him to live in his humanity on earth. And if that's the case, then therefore I can walk in Jesus' footsteps. 
So although Jesus was God incarnate, he did not live his life as Jesus, relying on his deity. We talked about this last week. Rather, he lived and obeyed as Jesus the man, fully dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. Although Christ was fully God, and as fully God, he could not sin, he deliberately did not appeal to his divine nature in fighting temptation. As fully human, he could not be tempted, but was temp- or as, as fully human, he could not only be tempted, but was tempted in the greatest way possible, as the greatest temptation any human has ever experienced in all history. So then, to sum up, so it's in your head, so you understand how I'm going to move. Jesus could not sin because he was God. Jesus did not sin, not because he relied on his deity, but rather because he used all the resources given to him in his human nature. Do you see where I'm going with this then, loved ones? This means that his temptations were very real. This means that he understands fully what you and I go through when we face temptation. This means that the same resources that Jesus relied on to resist temptation are the same resources that God has given to you and I. This means that 1 Corinthians 10.13 were meaningful to Jesus. No temptation. Oh, I've gone from my head now. All temp or no, how's it go? Yes, no temptation is overtaking you, but such that is common to man. Jesus experienced all the temptations that were common to man, but he also trusted in the faithfulness of God. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what we're able, but will provide a way through it. Jesus did that perfectly. And so what were the resources that Jesus relied on? I'll give you three. The Word. The Word of God. Jesus was a Psalm 1 man. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of wicked, nor stand in the seat of scoffer, nor sit in the seat of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. Jesus was a Psalm 119, verse 11 man. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus hid the word of God in his life. We haven't looked at the, the, the different accounts of Matthew and Luke of Jesus' temptation, but there we read that three times Jesus resisted the full-on weight of the devil in temptation. How? It is written. It is written. It is written. And so the same Bible the same scriptures, the same word of God that Jesus relied on to enable him to stand and resist temptation is the same word that you and I have. It is the same word that we rely on to help us resist temptation. The second is prayer. Jesus prayed often to his father. He helped his disciples with a summary of his prayer Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That would have been his constant prayer. Father, help me 
hallow your name in every situation. Father, may your kingdom come. Uh, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the garden, he prayed, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. But if there's no other way, I will follow your will and I will follow this route uh, as you have set before me and I will resist the temptation to call 10,000 angels and I will obey you fully to the, to the death. And to his disciples in the very garden, remember, three times he left them alone and he went to pray. Three times he came back and each time they were asleep. And I just read this this morning and Jesus said to them, stay awake and pray so you will not enter temptation. I was reflecting on my own personal life this past week. I sinned. And I was reflecting a little bit on, Paul, why? Why did you sin? And there's there a number of reasons, but... One of them was just a failure to be in prayer. There was just so many other things that I was preferring to do. And it's not that life should be every moment praying, but there should be, there should be our, our, in our day, it should be regularly filled with, God, I'm going into a day-to-day, and I need your help. God, I go into a day-to-day, and I'm not, not gonna, I don't, don't know what I'm going to face, but you do. Will you help me when I face temptation? And as I go to sleep at night, Father, you know what tomorrow holds. You know who I'm meeting. You know the tests that I can already anticipate. Will you prepare me for them? Will you give me a word for them? And so we pray as our Lord did. And then there's his dependence and reliance on the fullness of the Spirit. He lived in the strength and the power of the Spirit. Remember, we, we, we looked at this last week. And this week, Jesus didn't jump into temptation. He didn't just, ah, I've got to go into the desert. He waited until God led him through the Spirit into the desert. We talked last week about Galatians 5, where we're to be led by the Spirit, and we are to walk in the Spirit. Why? So we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And in Acts, as Peter is recounting Jesus, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So again, although Jesus was God, and although he was uh, sinless as God-man, he resisted and obeyed the Father, resisted temptation, not by his divine will, but by the word of God and by prayer and through the spirit of God that rested upon him. He steeled his heart to fight temptation as a man in dependence of God and in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever thought about the extent of Jesus' temptation Jesus would have fought every temptation, every time, fully experiencing its subtlety, its deception, its bait, its uh, unmitigated force. Every time he wrestled it to the ground. Sometimes we seek relief from temptation by giving in. It's too hard. It's too much pressure. It's too weighty. I just can't. I don't have the discipline. I don't have the power, whatever it might be. And so we give in, and that gives us relief from the temptation. Fills us with guilt and shame, but it gives us relief. Jesus never, ever once resisted or gave in to temptation. This is what I think Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, means when he suffered 
Have you ever suffered fighting temptation? It's hard work. You feel the censure of people, maybe, of friends. You feel the weight of, uh, of, of voices in your head, and you suffer. How great do you think the difficulty was that Jesus faced in resisting temptation? Satan knew how many sins it would take to make Jesus a sinner. How many? One. And yet Jesus resisted every temptation, full force of it, thought, intent, and motive, every single time. So practically, let me pull this to a conclusion quickly. What difference does it make to know that Jesus lived his life as one of us, fighting with the resources given to him in his hum human nature? I think it makes all the difference in the world. It tells me that God has given me the resources, that I can get better and better and better and better at resisting temptation, that I can more and more and increasingly walk in the way that God has called me to walk as I understand how Christ walked with God. The question is, will you and I make use of the resources that God has given us? And what are those resources? I mentioned them, three. One is the word of God. Will we saturate our minds with scripture? Will we be a Psalm 1, man or woman? Will we take Psalm 119.11 seriously? It doesn't just happen. You know, we've been doing the 10 by 5 by 5 reading plan here as a church. Part of that is to, to not only familiarize ourselves with Scripture, but to equip us to fight temptation. Because as we read the Scriptures, and if you have opportunity to talk to one another, you, you say, wow, that was, that was an amazing passage of Scripture. And we communicate that with one another. I think my wife is here. I saw her. Um, she may be embarrassed. One of the things that I am so amazed about Kathy is she got this at a young age. I actually have her Bible, The Way, in my study. As a very young girl, 11 or 12 years old, Kathy just gave herself to God. And the Word of God became her food. And it guided her, and it shielded her, and it protected her as she walked as a young lady. And she resisted and avoided so many temptations that others faced because she gave herself to loving God and loving the word of God. So that is one of the ways that you and I can practically steal ourselves to face temptation. The second is by having a life of fervent, regular prayer. It doesn't mean that we, we, we have to pray 18 hours a day on our knees in our studies or in our bedrooms or in our living rooms. But what it means is that we recognize our need for prayer. We recognize that God answers prayer. And we discipline our lives. We build into our lives opportunities again and again where we regularly pray. And when we know we're going to face a season of testing or a season of tempting temptation, then we pray even more fervently. We say, God, I need to spend some time with you. We get up a little bit earlier in the morning. We stay up a little bit later at night. And we pray. We say, God, help me. Guide me. Equip me. And how about learning to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit? Have you learned to discern the voice of the Spirit in your life? 
it's something we learn. We, we learn how to hear the voice of the Spirit amongst all the other voices that fill our minds. I mentioned this this morning. I might have mentioned this a number of years ago, but some of you are new. One of the ways that I illustrate this, and it helps me to think about it, is years ago, I pastored um, in a church in Vancouver. It was a large building, and uh, it had a large balcony that was quite a ways back, and uh, there was Sunday night church then. Imagine that novel, Sunday night church, and every night that church was packed, or every Sunday night that church was packed, and it was a Pentecostal church, so there was noise, and uh, stuff that you associate sometimes with Pentecostal worship. Often at the end of a service, there would be a time of prayer down at the front, and there would be sometimes a couple hundred people that would leave their seats, leave the balcony, would go down to the front, and would just call out to God, pray for one another, have people pray for them, sing, kneel, um, just a variety of activities, but it was often a wonderful time of seeking God. Noisy, though. And one of these Sundays, uh, Kath and I were sitting up in the balcony, and a young couple was beside us that had just had a baby, a couple months old. And uh, as the call to come to the front prayed, the wife looked over at her husband, and my assumption was she asked, can I go down? And he said, go. So she slipped out of the balcony, went down the stairs, went down to the front of the church, and I followed her into the crowd, and she was just worshiping God. And with my other eye, I was just keeping an eye on her husband and the little baby. As I said, it's a, it's a place where people are crying out to God. And all of a sudden, I happened to be looking at her at the same time her little baby made a little peep. And she just whirled around, <laughs> and she looked at her husband and got a sort of a nod of approval. And that has stuck in my head. She had learned to discern the voice of her little baby in the midst of all other sounds that she had heard. That is what you and I need to do. We need to learn to discern when the Holy Spirit is speaking. And we learn by trial and error. We do. You learn, though, to distinguish the voice of the Spirit of God from all other voices. These are the three practical things that God has given us. Jesus modeled as our example of how we resist temptation. The word of God, prayer to God, and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. May God equip us to be men and women, young men and women, young boys and girls who fall in love with the word, who fall in love with the Father, and who realize our desperate need to be empowered by the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I pray that it will, it is true. I pray that it will help us this week as we go out into the world from here. Some of us will be alone. Some of us will be in alien environments. Some of us will face incredible tests. And some of us will be stretched to the max. Father, I pray we wouldn't throw our hands up in the air and say, well, Jesus doesn't know what I'm going through. But rather we say, Jesus knows exactly what I'm going through and what I'm facing. And I can use the same resources that he did to stand against this temptation. Help your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.